episode 78, Volcanic Pottery. I'm assistant curator Merle Riedel, and you're listening to an April 8th, 2009 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. Located on the dusty plains of Kansas, the Dryden Pottery Factory was no crackpot organization. Founded by a World War II vet, James Dryden, this company mixed volcanic ash with local mud to produce some stunning ceramic pottery in the 1950s. Join curator Blair Tarr and me as we examine pottery from the company that nearly cornered the market on crappy souvenir ceramics. Find out where Dryden found his secret volcanic ash and how a new highway ran them out of town. Then, we want you to be our friend. Assistant Museum Director Rebecca Martin explains how you can get updates about our podcast by using Facebook. Finally, what's the link between synthetic hormones and William Allen White? It's baseball. Find out how the small-town newspaper editor from Emporia is connected to what was once America's favorite pastime when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. But first, volcanic pottery. Good morning, Blair. Good morning. Today we are going to discuss several pieces of pottery that were manufactured by Dryden Pottery in Ellsworth, Kansas. Um, in particular, some of the pieces that we're looking at in our collection, uh, there's a tall yellow pitcher and a small pink decanter. Um, for a while, Dryden Pottery was manufactured in Kansas. What does Dryden Pottery typically look like and could you pick it out of a lineup if you had to uh i could probably pick it up if i literally did pick it up actually uh does it have any specific characteristics there is one thing that's very obvious if you look at the bottom of the each piece and that is that whereas glaze is not finished it's a light brown that differs from the arkansas pieces that were later which are more white than light brown and that has to do with the clay and ash that they used out at ellsworth the company was named after James Dryden. Who was James Dryden? Well, he's a native Kansan. He was born in Inglewood, and by the time he was 10, his family had moved up to Ellsworth, where his father ran a hardware store. Just to clarify, he was born in Inglewood, which is like southwest Kansas, not far from Liberal. And yes, I hope you're right about that. I think that <laughs> sounds familiar. <laughs> and Ellsworth is uh, cent kind of central Kansas. Yes, a little bit uh, west of Salina. Yeah. Like a lot of people in his generation, he served in World War II and afterwards came back and was looking about for something that he could make him uh, a living at. Was he was he more of a businessman or was he an artist? That's kind of a good question. I'm not sure what the answer to that really is. Actually, he, he's probably a little bit of both because he does seem to have some good business instincts about him, but he's also a bit of an artist too. In fact, he's always, as I recall, he's, he was doing sketches when he was a kid and 
that sort of helped him later on get into school. Dryden was a World War II vet, like you said, and like uh, many World War II vets, the GI Bill drastically changed his life. Uh, what was the GI Bill, and what did it do for Dryden? Uh, the GI Bill essentially gave returning veterans from World War II, and actually it still helps returning veterans today, although it has to, it, the legislation has changed a bit. Uh, it helped him get an education, and it also helped provide a few loans that could get help him get his business started as well. Uh, when he came back uh, from World War II, he... I can't remember where he went offhand, but I know he went to a few art schools to get additional training. And after he had that additional training, uh, he did get a small loan that he used to help get his business started in Ellsworth. Though Dryden did produce some rather high-end designs, like um, like the Grecian urn or the picture that that we're looking at. What does a Grecian urn, by the way? <laughs> I don't know. No, not not a whole lot. It's pretty clever. Um, they're prim- primarily known for a different type of pottery. Um, what type of pottery did 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 Dryden dominate? There's there's a lot of souvenir items in that he made, uh, which is sort of extended from his high end pottery. So you could because you could get the name of your tourist attraction placed on that, or else the town you were from. Right. So you could have Carrie Nation Home and. Medicine Lodge or the Eisenhower Library in Abilene or just have towns like Salino uh, on the, it put into the side of the, yeah. the piece. Sometimes the little the little piece relates to what's on it. Like you might have a boot for um, like Abilene, which is a yes. cow town. Or Dodge City and Boot Hill. Yeah. Other times it really like has nothing to do. It's just yeah, a salt shaker that says like election 52. Yeah. it's <laughs> You get a nice collection of things there. And it's, it's the sort of thing that's sold pretty well in the 50s, actually. Where would you buy these kind of little kitschy, um, uh, you know, ashtrays or salt and pepper shakers? Well, aside from tourist attractions, I assume that he did sell to some of the five and dime stores that were still around in local communities. And uh, and actually he sold to various organizations, too, because if you belong to the Masons or uh, some fraternal organizations, they made pieces for them as well as businesses that were used as advertising pieces um at his shop in ellsworth what kind of what kind of uh, shop or facilities was he working in i know like there was mention of a former like uh, air force base or an army base that he worked out of uh yeah he had a building that was moved in uh from the old walker army airfield at uh out at hayes or in victoria closer to victoria uh, I think it, I forget what the building was used for at the Air Force. I think it was like base. barracks or something. Yeah, I, I think you're right because it was, as he said, it was cheap. It cost him a few hundred dollars to buy and then to move it in. And it gave him a little bit more workspace than he would have had otherwise. And he, I mean, he was a pretty decent um, source of employment for the community, right? He was. He, d- he did help out quite a bit. Uh, and for people who were passing through Ellsworth on US 40, uh, a lot of people did stop and buy the pottery there at, the, at his business. Uh, but this also gets back to why he, he was also a pretty good businessman because I think he could see that Ellsworth was not exactly the place where he was going to be able to make profits in the long run. Mm-hmm. Because by he starts his business in the mid 40s, he's after World War II. He, leaves, I think it's 1955, for Arkansas. 
And part of this is is that he just wants to go someplace where there's more of a tourist trade. And he goes to Hot Springs, I believe it is, down in Arkansas. And that's kind of related to um, construction of Interstate 70, right? It is. Named after uh, another World War II vet. Yes, yes. Uh, I'm not quite sure how much this plays into it, but I-70 would have passed up Ellsworth, as it does today, of course, by about 10 miles to the north. So... Ellsworth probably doesn't get the same traffic it did on US 40, and this was really getting the uh, going to cut in Dryden's business to to some extent. This collection came to the museum in 2008. Uh, who was the donor, and did they have any idea what they had? Yeah, I think they had a pretty good idea what they had. They, it was a couple actually named G.L. Dubois and uh, Joy Bliss. And uh, they've actually written the book on Dryden pottery. So, Literally. Yes. They've, <laughs> uh, They're kind of great, the resident experts on this type of pottery. They were able to interview a number of the employees out at Ellsworth and also down in Arkansas. In fact, they were able to talk to Mr. Dryden before he passed away a few years ago. So uh, they really have done the work that's probably def- definitive as far as Dryden pottery goes. So just just to be clear, he started out in Ellsworth, and at a certain point, he did move to Hot Springs, Arkansas. And you had mentioned that you can identify Dryden pottery by what it looks like, um, and that's because of the ingredients that were going into it. What what was it about Ellsworth that made things look different? Uh, well, there's two things. It was the kind of clay that was out there as well, which was very good for pottery. It was a little I forget what the word is exactly. It, Muddy. Muddy, yes. It's slippery. It didn't quite gel as well, but it did when they added some volcanic ash that could be found out in that area, too. Ah, yes. The secret volcanic ash ingredient. (laughs) And this plays into the move to Hot Springs, too, because you have the right clay down there as well. You doesn't have to worry. But, yeah, you have the right clay and volcanic ash that works very well, and that's why you have that light brown underneath on the bottom of a... Uh, the, the Kansas pieces that isn't there for the Arkansas pieces. So, did they continue? I mean, uh, did they continue to produce pottery uh, of the similar, of the same style in Hot Springs, Arkansas? Are they still producing today? They are still producing today. They're still active, even though Mr. Dryden is no longer with us. Uh, a lot of the pieces, including the Grecian urn, that's one that they've continued to make through the years. Are they still making little boots with the name of a town on it? You know, I'm not 100% sure about that. I think they are, but I'm not. <laughs> so can you, you can still find, uh, you can still purchase uh, Dryden pottery. You can still purchase it through the factory in Arkansas. And actually, I just was out on eBay looking to see. There's quite a few pieces of both Kansas and Arkansas pieces. Along with the pottery, Mr. Dibwat also donated a bag of broken shards and um, some other some <laughs> yes. other items. Can you talk a little bit about some of these like uh, non-pottery items that he donated? Well, he also got several shovelfuls of the volcanic ash, which we didn't take all of that into the collection. We did take no. fill a jar and, so that we would have that just... For the record and for ex- exhibition, if we, sure. we do things. It's hard to number dust. Yes, it is. It's the little specks are very hard and difficult to do. But <laughs> anybody with a good pen can do it. <laughs> uh, the broken shards, uh, whenever there were imperfect pieces, or in some case a mold got broke, broken, uh, those were just dumped near the pottery in Ellsworth and literally kind of like a landfill just sort of covered over, and these were dug up and found. Uh, 
we didn't take all the shards. In fact, we took more of the, the broken molds that were at least intact enough that you could see what the molds were used for, just so that we could e- exhibit that as well. I was looking through Mr. Dibwad's book on Dryden pottery, and there's some photographs of people that have gotten creative with the shards themselves. Yes. They eventually, they essentially do mosaics on fireplaces yeah. with these shards. So I mean, his it's even the broken stuff. You know, people still, still enjoy good. it and yeah, find ways. Yeah, probably to use still it. people digging it up out at Ellsworth. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Blair, my last question is: besides basically thickening a good Kansas clay stew, uh, what other purposes are there for this volcanic ash? Which I didn't even realize we had volcanic ash in Kansas. <laughs> um, my suggestion is that uh, volcanic ash, I think, works pretty good as a preservation type material. You know, just just ask the people of Pompeii or, or Herculaneum. Of course, yes, and the people up in Alaska are getting showered a little bit now, right? <laughs> they probably didn't appreciate what yes, I'm saying. Yes, no, they're probably them. not. You're probably going to hear from them. Probably. Uh, that seems to happen. Yeah, there, there's some uses for volcanic ash. I'm afraid I can't really tell you offhand, though, because if I did, I'd have to trade you to another historical society in another state. So it's, oh. it's a professional secret. It's, oh, it is a trade <laughs> secret. Okay. <laughs> Well, Blair, thanks for telling us about uh, Mr. Uh, uh, Mr. Dryden and his pottery company in Ellsworth. You're quite welcome. If you would like to see images of the Dryden Volcanic Pottery, just go to our website, kshs.org, and click on Podcast. For many... Facebook and other social networking sites are redefining how we interact with each other. The Kansas Museum of History wants to be a part of that interaction. Assistant Museum Director Rebecca Martin tells us about the museum's presence on Facebook. It's not just for weirdos and high schoolers anymore. What is Facebook and when did it first begin? Well, it's a social networking site and it first began in, uh, I think, well, it was developed in the early years of this century, but it really first got published in 2004. And um, it was developed by some guys at Harvard University, and it was a way of networking online with fellow students, which is basically what a networking site is, a social networking site is about. It's online, and it's a way of interacting with other people, but only in the virtual world. What does the Kansas Historical Society, uh, do, do, do we have a Facebook account? We do, and it's called the Kansas Historical Society Fan, um, so F-A-N. Um, and we just started this not too long ago, and we're looking into ways of delving more deeply into social networking uh, with people who are our fans or our Facebook friends. And uh, we're kind of exploring all sorts of different ideas about how to do it. In, in the past, we've been a little passive about it, but we want to get a little more active, uh, like many people are using Facebook now. Uh, and, and a lot of people who are on Facebook um, are Obviously, teenagers, that's kind of our college age people, that's where Facebook got its start. But now there are a lot of people who are older, especially from about 35 to 55. That demographic is growing incredibly um, fast. And so we know there are a lot of people out there who are using Facebook who would probably appreciate some updates from us. And we don't want to be like your average institution that has a Facebook account, a Facebook account and doesn't do anything with it because no. then it's kind of pointless. That's what we, unfortunately, <laughs> we haven't been as active as we could be. Yeah. Right, right. But we're looking yeah. at changing that. Yeah, because uh, Facebook is 
a network site. It's all about networking, and so we want to maintain and build connections with people. What can listeners of this podcast do with our Facebook account? How 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 can it impact their lives? Well, first of all, they have to become a fan of Kansas Historical Society. And how do they do that? And you go to um, Facebook if I mean if you're not already. Um, on Facebook, you should be because 175 million other people are. <laughs> um, so you'd sign up for a Facebook account. It's really easy. Um, and then you start searching for people you know who are online. And um, you also start searching for groups. And the Kansas Historical Society Fan Club is a group um, on Facebook. And you just click on the Join button. And then what we'll do is we will send you updates, um, new things that we're doing. For example, we know that a lot of our listeners, uh, Cool Things podcast listeners, listen off their desktops. They don't download to an iPod. So wouldn't it be great if you got a notice on your Facebook account that we have a new podcast for you to listen to? I uh, think it would be great. I do, too. And we're also kind of kicking around some other ideas about um, letting people know when we've gotten in a really cool object that we haven't had time to uh, build into a full-blown Cool Things podcast right. or full-blown Cool Things webpage, um, but just some really neat things that have come in or neat people we've met as in the course of our work. Right. It allows us to kind of function in real time a little bit more, yeah. you know, not so polished, but like as the information comes to us, we pass it on to our sure. Facebook friends. Uh-huh. Yeah. So you have to be a friend. And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today is Assistant Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Hello. And Curator Laurel Fritch. Hi. This week, we commemorate the opening of baseball season by taking a swing at connecting William Allen White to Hank Aaron. Uh, an early African-American playing in the Major League Baseball and a longtime holder of the home run record. So we'll start out with a little general background. Hank Aaron, also known as Hammer and Hank, was born in 1934 in Mobile, Alabama. He grew up poor and uh, picked cotton. Uh, parents couldn't really afford baseball equipment, so he practiced hitting baseball or hitting bottle caps with sticks. I don't know. It's kind of a story that you hear with every young baseball player. <laughs> they all come from poor backgrounds, and they're all hitting bottle caps with sticks. That's right. Um, starting his junior year of high school, he actually played on an independent Negro League team, and he made $10 per game. Cha-ching. I think he ended up a little better than that. In 1954, he moved to the majors to play for the Milwaukee Braves. Throughout his career, he won a few World Series championships and played in multiple All-Star games. As one of the first African Americans to play in the majors, um, he did this in the 1950s, which was a period uh, where you still had racial segregation and Jim Crow laws in the South. So it actually ended up Aaron, who was their star player, was often forced to stay in separate hotels and couldn't eat with the rest of the teams in some of the diners and cafes. But what is he best known for? In 1934, Aaron tied and then beat Babe Ruth's career home one record, one of the most sacrosanct records in American sports. Um, Aaron received actually received hundreds of death threats in the months leading up to the record, uh, leading up to shattering the record because nobody there was a lot of people that didn't want a black man to beat Babe Ruth's record. Um, Aaron's record actually stood until 2006 when Barry Bonds broke it. Um, and according to many, Bonds' claim Bonds' claim to the record is invalid due to his alleged dependency on performance-enhancing drugs. Mm -hmm. I say he cheated. So it could still be up in the air. Yeah. 
So, what does this all have to do with a newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas? Good question. Good question. And Laurel, I believe you can answer that. That's right. Well, William Allen White knew someone named Robert La Follette. And Robert La Follette was a very famous progressive Wisconsin governor. And he was nicknamed Fightin' Bob for his rousing oratorical skill and his battles against corruption. Yeah, he was a pretty um, uh, quirky character. Yeah, he is a really, really fun and interesting person in history. So if you're interested, you should definitely check out more about him. If you look at pictures of him, he's kind of got Rod Bogoyevich hair a little bit. <laughs> And I mean, he's a governor in like the 1920s or something. Definitely. He has some crazy hair and he always looks very angry yeah. in all of the photos. Definitely a good name for him is Fightin' Bob. Um, well, Robert's grandson, Bronson LaFollette, he ended up receiving a Bachelor of Arts degree in political science from UW-Madison. And he received that degree in 1958. And in 1956, Commissioner of Major League Baseball Bud Selig also received a Bachelor of Arts in <laughs> Political Science from UW-Madison. So I don't know if they might have been in the same classes or not. So that's what, um, that's what a director of Major League Baseball, that's what they get their degree in, is political science. Uh, apparently <laughs> so. I didn't know that. Yeah, people think it might be sports science, but no, 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 political mm. science. Um, but I have a feeling that uh, it's coming in very, very handy for Bud Selig, sure. especially given some of the problems that Major League Baseball has had. Well, anyway, um, before Bud Selig became commissioner of baseball, he was the owner and president of the Milwaukee Brewers, formerly the Milwaukee Braves. Mm -hmm. And he was the owner and president during the 1970s. And as you already mentioned, Merle, um, Hank Aaron played for the Milwaukee Braves, but he later came back and ended up playing for the Brewers when they were renamed. And he did that between 1975 and 1976 when Bud Selig was the president and owner. So there you go. William Allen White to Robert LaFollette to Bronson LaFollette to Bud Selig and to Hank Aaron. Nicely done. Nicely done. Uh, all right, Nikayla, what do you got for us? Okay. Well, as you already mentioned, when you say the name Hank Aaron, you think baseball. And when you say baseball, you think steroids, which <laughs> you mentioned as uh, Barry Bonds, um, the scandal surrounding his breaking of the home run record. Um, yeah. Uh, actually, interestingly enough, Hank Aaron refused to go to the games where Barry Bonds was playing mm -hmm. to witness the breaking of his of his record because of Bonds' supposed steroid taking. Um, guess who else took steroids? Reportedly, his doctor said William that Hitler Allen. took steroids. Hitler took steroids? Hitler took steroids, oh, That kind of yeah. explains a lot. Yeah, and apparently it was not uncommon for members of the Nazi party to take them. It helps with their, it was kind of aggression-inducing, so it was not uncommon for them. Really? Yeah. We all know Hitler wrote Mein Kampf, and William Allen White encouraged the publication of Mein Kampf when he worked for the Book of the Month Club. Right, because he was an advocate of the free press, and That's he felt right. like you no no form of, of publication should be inhibited. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So who would have thought you could connect them through steroids and Hitler? Steroids and Hitler. <laughs> yeah. Fun. Doesn't seem right. Well, those are fun facts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, uh, and Laurel, would you like to issue the challenge for the next episode? 
Sure. Well, at the special request of a, one of our listeners, we want you to connect William Allen White to the Jolly Green Giant. Surely you remember the Jolly Green Giant. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Leo Burnett, the advertising genius behind Toucan Sam, the Pillsbury Doughboy, mm-hmm. one of my personal favorites, um, and Tony the Tiger, created JGG in 1928. The green-skinned, incredible Hulk-like giant represented the Green Giant Food Company, named for a specific variety of peas. There you go. More fun facts. That's why it's called the Jelly Green Giant. And who my sister had a crush on when she was a kid. The Jelly Green Giant? Yeah, she thought he was pretty cute. Hmm. Yeah, but she hates peas, so ironic, huh? Weird. <laughs> Weird how that worked out. So if you think you connect, you can connect William Allen White to a giant dressed with an inappropriately short leafy toga, just send your solution to podcast at kshs.org. That is podcast with an S. That concludes episode 78, Volcanic Pottery. If you enjoyed this episode or found it incredibly lame, we'd like to hear about it. Go to our iTunes page and post a comment. You'll find us under Cool Things in the Collection, Kansas Museum of History. Or complete a survey on our website, kshs.org, by clicking on Podcasts and scrolling to the bottom of the page. Come back in two weeks when Assistant Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman and I examine a revolver used during John Brown's infamous raid on Harper's Ferry. The revolver belonged to Albert Heslett, a Brown minion from Kansas. Was Heslett a mindless disciple of the charismatic Brown or a spineless thrill seeker that fled at the first opportunity? Find out in two weeks. This podcast has been a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories.